This morning we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And a reading from Isaiah chapter 43. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this? And proclaim to us the former things. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign god among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thanks, uh, Cindy. Uh, good uh, afternoon and welcome. And for those of you who are back from last week, if you joined us last week on Easter for the first time, we're glad to have you back. As you can see, we're beginning a brand new series today from the book of Acts called The Best is Yet to Come, which is all about the power of Jesus in the book of Acts. And the, the reason we're calling it that is actually pretty easy because that thought is right there in the first line of the first chapter of that book where the writer of Acts, a guy by the name of Luke, he tells you, he says, in my other book, also named Luke, yes, what he says, uh, my other book was all about this. It's about what Jesus began to do and teach. The inference is that the sequel here, the book of Acts, is more of the same. He's saying the book of Acts is going to show you that Jesus Christ is still doing the same things he did while he lived on earth. Jesus Christ is still teaching 
the same things he taught on earth, except he's telling you here in the opening line, but it's going to get better. In my other book, he says, yes, Jesus began to change the world, but in this book, he's saying, through Jesus' church, the best is yet to come. Now, if you're here and you're saying, well, man, I don't know about that. I like Jesus all right, but not that church thing so much. How can the best be yet to come? I mean, Jesus was great, but he's gone. It seems like, you know, the best would be over. How can the best be yet to come? Well, let me try to show you throughout this series, but also especially this morning, how what Luke is saying here is true, that the best of Jesus is yet to come. And we can see that all in a one-word phrase right there at the beginning, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And if you, if we can grasp that one phrase right there, you can understand how not just this book fits in, but you'll be able to understand how the whole Bible comes together. You say, how is that? Let me try to show you this morning in four ways, four parts. First, we're going to see who the witness. Number two, what the witness. Three, where the witness. And finally, four, how the witness. Let's begin here, number one, and look at who these witnesses are. Let me try to set the scene for you quickly. The book of Acts begins with the resurrected Jesus' final conversation with his disciples. And in the final conversation here, at the end of 40 days with them, Jesus says something that catches their attention. He says, don't leave Jerusalem yet, but wait for the coming of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this gets them really excited, and they're so excited, they ask him a question in response. And unfortunately, the question you're about to hear asked is arguably the most tragically comic question that's ever been asked in all the Bible. So they hear Jesus say that, and they ask this. They gathered around him, and they ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, here's what they're asking. They're saying, Jesus, are you finally going to make Israel great again? (laughs) One of you got that. All right. (laughs) Jesus, are you finally going to bring that kingdom thing back? Our nation, you know, hasn't had a king in like 600 years, ever since the Babylonians took us into exile and broke our monarchy. Are you finally going to kick out now the latest group? That's oppressing us. The Romans, are we finally now coming into power? You know, Jesus, we're not quite sure what the whole baptism in the Holy Spirit thing means, but it sounds pretty powerful. And power is what we need to get our party in charge. You've died. You've come back to life, and that's awesome, even though we didn't really believe you when you said it was going to happen, but we're not going to go back there. But the point is, Jesus, you're alive. People are seeing you alive. We're on a roll, Jesus. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And when they ask him that, look at what he says. He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. See, he's telling them, you need to get it out of your minds. That I am a means to your personal power or national glory. He says, get that out of your minds. But he says, you know, since you brought the whole power thing up, I'll tell you. You want to know when you're going to receive power? Hmm? You want to know when you're going to come to power? I'll tell you. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
Wow. He says, yes, okay. I am about power, but a different kind of power than anyone's ever seen before. He says, yes, you're going to receive power, but it's going to be power to do and be something else. Look at it. He says, power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Wow. Here's what he's saying, because it's shocking. He's saying, I'm not going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but you are going to bring my kingdom to the whole earth. You thought my resurrection was about your little country? Are you kidding me? He says, I've got a great big plan for the whole world. Jesus is saying, I've got a plan to restore the whole world, and my plan is you. Oh, wow. Now, who are these would-be witnesses again? Let's do a little roll call here, shall we? All right, Peter, hmm, denied Jesus. Yes, all right. James and John tried to call down fire on people they didn't like. You've likely, you know, you've got a friend in your life that's like this, I'm sure. Simon a zealot wanted to assassinate the king. Matthew, a traitor, used to collect taxes for Rome from his own people, got rich doing it. Andrew, fisherman, All of them abandoned Jesus under pressure. And you think your small group is weird, right? You think your community group's got problems. They've got nothing on this group of folks. Who are these people he's going to use? Oh, average, ordinary, uneducated, broken people. Jesus is choosing here to launch his global rescue plan. Hmm. Now let's ask, is it working? Is the plan working? Well, you're here today, aren't you? (laughs) We're here today, aren't we? Yeah. As a matter of fact, there are more than 2 billion Christians in the world today, and sociologists estimate that in most of our lifetimes, Christianity will surpass 3 billion people. It's already the largest group of any kind on the planet, beginning with 11 people here. And Acts 1 predicts it will happen. See, I love this whole scene. It shows me that Jesus does, Jesus can, Jesus will use anyone. Yes, even me, even you. He's bigger than our flaws. You ought to say amen. He's bigger than our weaknesses. You ought to say amen. And no matter how many people try to mess it up, no matter how many bad popes we get, no matter how many bad pastors we get, no matter how many you know, bad parishioners there are, his plan for the world will come to pass. He's got a plan to restore the whole world using messed up people as one thing in particular, as witnesses. So what in the world does that mean? Number two, let's ask, what is a witness? What's a witness? Well, let's go back in time for some context. To be a witness in ancient Israel was a really big deal. It was regarded as a sin to fail to speak up in court if you knew something about a case. Uh, You had specific duties laid out in the law as a witness, and of course, lying as a witness was forbidden. Perjury could cost you your life. Here's the point. Witnesses in ancient Israel established truth claims in courts of law. Was that person guilty? Was he innocent? Was she right or was she wrong? Only a witness could decide the matter. Only testimony from a witness could prove the truth. So what does Jesus do here? What's he doing? Well, he doesn't just use the word witness. He actually picks up and quotes a whole line 
from Isaiah 43 in the Old Testament about witnesses. And guess what's happening back in Isaiah 43? Yeah, you got it. A trial. There's a trial going on. Isaiah 43 is all about a trial because a trial has what? Witnesses, yeah. And in Isaiah 43 here, God has summoned the whole world to a trial in the court, and he puts himself on trial. And God has called this cosmic trial to answer the question, who is the real God? Will the real God please stand up? Please stand up. Isaiah says this, look, all the nations gather together. The people's assemble. The whole world's there. Which of their gods foretold this, proclaimed to us the former things. See, the reason the question was being asked, who's the real God, was because in those days when one nation conquered another nation, it was believed that that nation's God deity was more powerful than the nation who God conquered. And there's a problem here in Isaiah because Israel has been defeated. They're in exile because they've broken God's law been unjust, been unfaithful for centuries. And God's allowed them to go into exile. They've been defeated. And now Israel, along with the whole world, is asking, is this God really who he says he is? Is there one true God? There's, see, there's a truth claim at stake here. And God has summoned all the nations and saying, let them bring in their witnesses to prove their right. What were those witnesses saying? They were saying, Israel's God is weak. Israel's God is powerless. So who is going to stand up for God in this court? Well, in a shocking turn, with himself on trial, God turns to his own people, to the liars, to the cheaters, to the covenant breakers, and God calls them, people he had just called blind and deaf, and he says to them, you are my witnesses. You're the ones who are going to stand up for me in the world. Now, what does this show us here? It shows us two things I love about the heart of God. First, it shows us this God, our God, is a God of mercy. God's calling the descendants of liars and cheaters and covenant breakers to defend him. Oh, means no matter where you are today, no matter what you've been through, God wants to use you, me, us, as his witnesses. But second, it shows us that this God is a God of risk because he's decided once and for all, he said, I'm casting my lot, pushing all my chips in, betting the farm on you, on my people, being my witnesses. See, this is the biblical pattern from Adam and Eve, right? Back in the garden to the first covenant community at Mount Sinai, God called to the exiles here in Babylon, to those disciples in the book of Acts. The Bible is the story of God calling people to be his witnesses in a world that puts him on trial. And let me show you how important this is. Thomas Nagel is a prominent atheist American philosopher. He was at NYU for quite a while. And he wrote a book a few years ago called The Last Word. And in a moment of incredible honesty, as you're going to see, Nagel said this. He admits this. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. I'm curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. 
Now look what he's saying here. He's saying no one is indifferent to God. Everyone's put God on trial in their lives at some point. But though, he says, oh, on one hand, he says, though no physical evidence can convince him God exists, though he admits, yeah, I've bought off and bribed my own internal jury, let myself off the hook, though he admits he's biased and no evidence can get through, he actually admits, though, that something is getting through to him. He says it's the lives of the Christians in his life. He acknowledges the one crack in his armor is coming from the witnesses in his life. Yeah, and he's right because that's just how it works, right? There's hardly anybody who comes to faith without a witness in their life. No one comes to Christ all on their own. And you know this, you're here today because someone has been a witness to you somewhere, whether a family member, right, or friend or loved one. And most of the time, that witness has just been someone super ordinary, right? Someone just telling the truth about what they believe, what they've seen, or what they know. So let me draw this out for you, all right? Tomorrow morning, when you go to work, will people know you're a witness because of how you work, because of the caliber and quality of your work? Do you, you fudge on the numbers, to make them look better? Do you flirt with the receptionist or your coworker when no one's looking? Do you show up on time and do quality work for your customers or your, your colleagues or your boss or your, your students or whoever you're serving, right? See, to a large extent, whether or not people will believe in God is dependent on how we look and how we live. And Isaiah 43 is telling us sometimes the nations, sometimes the reason the nations doubt there's a God is because of how the witnesses Live and look. It says, because we fail to be good witnesses. But Isaiah 43 also tells us that no matter what, God never gives up on his people. That's the miracle of what he's saying in here in Isaiah. And then centuries later, Jesus Christ takes those same words on his lips and he calls in also a group of people who had also turned their backs on him. And he says the same thing. He says, I am never going to give up on you and you will be my witnesses. Whew. He says, you are actually the fulfillment of what Isaiah saw. You're the witnesses. You've been the witnesses all along. In a world that's going to put me on trial. That's what he's saying. Now, I think that's amazing. <laughs> but if you think they were stunned by that part, where do you see what happens next? What he says next. Let's look at that number three. Where the witness. Because Jesus says to them, you, right, you will be my witnesses. And I think they would have said, yes, we're going to be the witnesses. That's a really big deal, yeah. What a great thing for us. He says, you're going to go to Jerusalem. He, they say, yes, Jerusalem. We like Jerusalem. That's a capital city. Better than way, you know, podunk Galilee, where we're from. He says, you're going to go to Judea. They said, Judea. It's like a whole county. We're going to be in the news, right? Then he says, you're going to go to Samaria. And they say, hang on a second. Wait a minute. We don't actually like the Samaritans. But before they can even protest the Samaria part, Jesus Christ says the worst thing he could have said to them. He said, you're going to be my witnesses to the rest of the world. The rest of the world. Now, hang on a second, Jesus. Did you say the rest of the world? The rest of the world, in case you didn't know, Lord of all creation of heaven and earth, second person, the Trinity, son of God. The world's filled with dirty pagans. 
The rest of the world is filled with people of other skin colors and ethnicities and people we don't like that can't enter our temple and that we don't even let into our houses. They're Gentiles, God, and we don't even like Gentiles. We hate the Gentiles. And so, with those terrible and awful words about loving their enemies ringing in their ears, Jesus leaves the planet for good. (laughs) Just like that. He leaves and he ascends to heaven, and we'll come back to that. But look at what happens next right after that. Immediately, verse 10 says, they were looking up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, these are angels, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, I think this is actually kind of hilarious. Two angels come and say, why are y'all still looking up? He's actually told you guys to go do something. But I think in part they were staring over and over at the sky, less about because, you know, Jesus had ascended and risen, but more because they could not believe what they had just heard. They could not accept what they had been called to do. Here's the point. What you can't miss is that literally, quite literally, the last words of Jesus were a call, a commission to go build a multi-ethnic church, one full of all peoples, all languages, all customs, all cultures. He's saying, I want a church full of Gentiles, which, by the way, is pretty much all of us today, most likely. He's saying, I want a church full of people who don't look the same, who don't talk the same, who haven't been educated the same, who listen to different music while they roll down Mopac during the week, right? And my plan is for my kingdom to come among all of them. And my witnesses are going to be people who can do that. From the beginning, here's the point. God has a multi-ethnic church in mind, I believe, in specific, for two reasons. Let me try to apply this in two ways. First, because I believe multi-ethnic church helps push racism out. Listen, racism, it's been around a long time before it ever made its way into and infected America. And unfortunately, the Jewish people in their day and age had become some of the biggest culprits. They hated the Samaritans because they were only half Jewish. They hated the Gentiles, especially the Romans, who occupied their nation. Here's the thing. In many cases, we're going to see, racism runs so deep in culture and in hearts, it's just hard for it to come out so deeply ingrained. And this was the case, in the case, of one of the disciples of Jesus, a man by the name of Peter. Peter of all people. Peter, of course, he hears these words here, this call to go to all peoples. Jesus loves all peoples. He had already seen Jesus loving the Gentiles, right, in his ministry over and over. And a little while after this, in Acts 1, he gets a vision where God basically rebukes Peter for being and feeling culturally superior and even though Peter has literally walked with Jesus, even though Peter was about to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, even though Peter performs legit miracle after miracle, and though he's the head of the church, Peter still has racism in his heart. Which means, by the way, no matter who we are, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how long how spiritual we think we are, it doesn't mean we're automatically free from racism in our hearts because there's this scene in the book of Galatians where Peter he'll only eat with 
his own kind. He won't eat with the people like that. And his buddy Paul comes up and says, hey, you know, buddy, flag on the play, Peter. That's hypocrisy right there. You can't do that. You're not living, at least you're literally not walking out the gospel, which is that you are saved by sheer grace, not because you've got a right culture, not because you've got a right skin color, even all the way by, you know, Peter, by the way, all racism is is works, righteousness, an attempt to make yourself feel better besides something other than the grace of God. Oh, here's the thing. Do you think Peter's lurking latent racism would have come up and have been exposed if he were not doing multi-ethnic church? No, no. It was only because he, can you see, he was in relationship with people of other skin colors and cultures. His own feelings of superiority began to be exposed. The point is, you can't really see your flaws. You must be shown your flaws. How does Peter's racism come up and out here? By being shown his flaws through relationships with people not like him. What laws can never do, Jesus' church can. But second, multi-ethnic church doesn't just help push racism out. It helps actually push love in. Here's what I mean. Maybe like some of you, I didn't really grow up you know, hating people of other backgrounds, but I didn't really love them either. And there's a big difference. I remember I had a white friend who said to me one time in high school, she said, you know, I really love black culture. I remember saying back to her, really? I don't. But God had other plans for me. And when I came to Christ, he put me in this multi-ethnic campus ministry called Every Nation Campus. You may have heard of it. Pretty great group, I've been told. And it was there I had, for the first time, real friends black, white, Latino, Asian for the first time. And God put so much love in my heart for people who weren't like me. And it changed me so much so that a few years later when I graduated and went into vocational ministry, uh, working at UT Austin, I inherited this little group. It's pretty much all white. And I knew with the level of holy conviction, I didn't want it to be that way. Wanted to be diverse. And I began to pray and I prayed and I prayed. I believe for our group to be multi-ethnic. And God honored those prayers so much that minority student after minority student began to come to faith in Jesus so much so a couple of years later at UT, our group was actually nominated to be the black student group of the year. (laughs) The white pastor guy. Which I know God found just unbelievably and beautifully ironic, right? And now I look at my life. I look at you and look at us, and despite our many flaws and the way we don't get it right or step on toes, there's lots of love here, and listen, it's been the greatest privilege of my life, honestly, to be called pastor by people from African-American, Asian, Latino backgrounds for whom that word really means something. All you white people, you call me like buddy and pal. It's true. I don't care. It's all good. Hey, friend, what's up? Man, let me tell you. Am I right, Shad? Pastor, that's right. So you call me whatever you like. It's all good. What I'm saying is it's an honor to be called pastor by people for whom that word really means something. See, what's done this? Not a law. It's relationships. Relationships. But listen, when we do this, when we commit ourselves to reaching out beyond our own skin color or age or demographic, and when we say, the church isn't about me, the church isn't about my comfort, the church is about being Jesus' witness. 
to the ends of the earth, which means to people not like me, by the way, when we say that's what I'm here for, that's what we're here for, we begin, can you see, to be truth tellers for the existence and the reality and the power of love of God in a world that's always putting him on trial. See, you by yourself, oh, you can be a good witness, but we together become a greater witness. We become like witness after witness after witness. God calls in to overwhelm the bias of people like that atheist professor. And we show the world there's something more powerful than hate or fear or prejudice. And we show the world there's something more powerful than all the justifiable reasons we would have to walk away from each other which is what pretty much the world does. When we just commit to being here for one another, loving one another, we, oh, I love it, we begin to be witnesses. Where? To the ends of the earth, to the rest of the world. You say, all right, I like that. I think I may be up for that. But where can I get the power to do and be that? We try to show you here, number four, finally, let's look at how. The witness how we can be these witnesses. Angels go on and say, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now what in the world are they talking about here? Well, they're talking about something called Jesus's ascension, which Jesus actually referred to immediately after He was resurrected. You remember that scene in the garden. Mary comes to him. He says, don't hold on to me, Mary. I am ascending to my father. And that is what's happening here. Once more, the disciples are trying to hold on to him. But Jesus is saying, I must ascend. And he does, which shows us this counterintuitive truth. It shows us that what was better than having him near and holding him near was having him go. What was better than holding him near was having him go. You think, well, how could this be? I mean, how could Jesus be saying, oh, the best is yet to come? Well, because here's how. See, to ascend is not just to to go up or leave the earth. To ascend means to go up onto a throne, as in the king is ascending to his throne. See, Jesus isn't just going up into the sky here. He's not just going up into the the heavens, the sky. Now, the angels say he's going up into heaven, like with a capital H. And he begins to do this by physically rising from the earth, which he had never done before. You think, well, why is he doing this? Why not just vanish? Why is he rising? Oh, he's rising to show you physically what's already happened spiritually. That Jesus now, the unique God-man, fully human, fully divine, is rising to take his place as the head and king of the human race, of all peoples. He's, He's saying, you can't keep me here. I've got a throne to ascend. Oh, and this is why this is so powerful. And why he can now say to us today, you will be my witnesses. Because if Jesus had only remained in one space at one time, there would be limits to who could meet him and encounter him and love him. But if he returns to the right hand of God the Father, now all those limitations go away. And now he can send the Holy Spirit into our hearts and the hearts of others to whom we are witnesses. You see, the ascension, oh, it doesn't mean the loss of of intimacy with him. It doesn't mean the loss of access, the diminishing of his power. No, it means the magnification of all those things to us in our lives. In other words, the ascension means the best is yet to come. 
The ascension means Jesus is ruling from heaven. And if you today, if you can see that, grasp that, take that truth into your heart, it'll change how you handle life today, tomorrow, and every day. You say, how's that? Let me try to show you like this. First Christian martyr, Stephen, at the end of his life, as he was being killed for being a witness, for preaching about Jesus, it says he looked up and he saw this in chapter 7. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, see, Stephen sees Jesus on his throne in heaven as he dies. His friends record that his face looked like an angel's. Why was this? How could this be? Oh, it was because Stephen saw and grasped the ascension. Jesus, now ascended on the judgment seat of history, had sent him to be a witness. And therefore, it didn't matter what his friends said. It didn't matter what an earthly court said, what the court of public opinion said about him. Stephen saw that the only person who mattered lived to look after him and love him. And Stephen could forgive even his enemies as they were killing him. But this, 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 this is the really amazing part. Stephen saw Jesus, what? Not sitting, but what? Standing. Why? Why would a king stand for a commoner? I mean, kings don't stand for subjects. Subject stands for kings. Why? What could compel a king to stand? Oh, a king only stands to honor the presence of someone great that's come before him. And here Jesus is showing, can you see the honor he gives to those who love him and serve him and who are witnesses for him, even though it costs them everything. And this, friends, this is what our king does. Yeah, he rises to his feet to honor those who honor him. The last thing Stephen sees on earth is his ascended king standing and honoring him and do you know what compels me to keep going and what i believe can help keep us going and you going today it's because of this same thing i believe i see jesus standing on behalf of this church yes for his global church yes for all the church around the world in asia and africa for the persecuted underground church for the martyrs of the middle east for those in latin america for those facing a tide of human and secularism in Europe. But yes, he's standing for us, for Little Mosaic Church in Austin, Texas today. Because he is ascended, it was better that he went away because he can send his Holy Spirit into all our hearts, into all our midst. I see Jesus standing today in honor of who we are, what we're trying to do, and in honor of for many of you who though it hasn't cost you your life to be here, it may have come close. Cost you probably some friends to be here. May have cost you some family to be here. Cost you your reputation. Maybe minimally some friends on Facebook. Cost you some hand-wringing, soul-searching, pain, prayer. It's just cost you. But I see him standing for us today. And I believe he's going to keep standing. Not because we're anything, but it's only because we're giving him what he deserves, what's in response to his great worth and sacrifice and love for us. And if you'll see him doing this, standing for you today, honoring, yes, even you today, cheering for you today, like Stephen, at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, it will make you unstoppable, like Stephen was, unstoppable against the forces of whatever is coming against your soul, like these first Christians were unstoppable and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Yeah. 
in a culture, in a culture today, that's put Jesus on trial. See, we become witnesses for the reality of his resurrection and his power and his love.